Hey, it's good to see you in the house of the Lord this evening. Turn to Psalm chapter 24. Psalm chapter 24. Trust y'all had a happy new year. As we look forward to the new year, as the old pastor in Maryland used to say, the future's as bright as the promises of God. Another world looks chaotic and troublesome, but we have the promises of God to look forward to, to be fulfilled, so we can rest in Him. Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For He hath founded it upon the seas, and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in His holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord, and his righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. Selah. How the message tonight simply, our sovereign King, our sovereign King. So let's look the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the opportunity and privilege we have to open your precious word. I pray as we look into the Word of God tonight that we'd be encouraged and, 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 and uh, strengthened in our resolve to walk with the Lord and be faithful to Him, uh, resting on His promises that are yea and amen. For Father, we have a bright and glorious future uh, as we consider our sovereign King who is soon coming for us again. And uh, Father, we just pray that you just encourage our hearts and even as we enter this new year, we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Of course, Psalm 22 talks about the shepherd and the cross. Psalm 23, the shepherd and the crook. Uh, we see him as the great shepherd. Psalm 24, we see him as our sovereign king. <clears throat> and as we consider this psalm tonight, he starts out speaking about creation. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and they that dwell therein. Uh, for he hath founded upon the seas and established it upon the floods. You know, he is the king, uh, uh, or, or the king of creation, or we see the creation of the king. It is he that made the worlds. He made the earth and the fullness thereof. You know, you could say earth and world, in verse 1 there, speaking the same thing. Fullness and they that dwell therein is talking about basically the same thing. Uh, fullness there, or the word fullness has to do with that everything that is in the world that God made. So he made the world, then he made, and he also made everything that is in the world. We know from Genesis chapter 1 and chapters 2 that he not only made the world and the earth, or the earth, but he also made all, everything that inhabits the world. Uh, and some, some smart might say, well, he didn't make cars. No, he didn't make cars, but yes, he did make cars. Because when God made things, he made it from nothing. 
when we make cars, we make it from things that God made. <laughs> you know. So really, he did make cars. We just happened to put them together. Uh, but the God has, is, has made everything that is in the world. He's made the world and everything that is in it. And God made uh, it for himself. Isaiah 45, 18 says, For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he hath established it, he, had, he created it not in vain, he formed it to be inhabited. Now he's talking here about the earth. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. You know, God made the earth to be inhabited. Didn't make Mars to be inhabited. He made the earth to be inhabited. In fact, he goes on in verse 2, and he says that he has, a, he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. The word established has the idea of confirmed it or maintained it. Um. <clears throat> Psalm 119, verse 89 and verse 90 says, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Thy faithfulness is unto all generation. Thou hast established the earth, and it abideth. In other words, it remains. It is maintained. It is conformed, uh, confirmed by him. And you know, we, we know that, you know, we, we hear people say, you know, talking about climate change and you know, things continue as they are, weather won't be any winter. Well, when I was your age, Ryan, they were saying as continue, things continue as they are, there won't be any summer. Because we were going to have glaciers all the way to New York. That's what they were saying when I was in school. And all of a sudden now it's, you know, there isn't going to be any glaciers. <laughs> um, I think there's just a bunch of mixed up people. But anyway, the Bible says in Genesis 8:22, while the earth remaineth, and he said that he hath established it and it abideth by him, but while remaineth, seed time and harvest... Cold and heat, and summer and winter, and day and night shall not cease. Now, you may think in North Carolina there isn't four seasons. We really don't have winter. But if you move to Maine, you'll find out there is. In fact, they have five. They also have a mud season. But, uh, no, God has established the earth. He's got, he is maintaining it. It's going to continue as it is until he comes again. And he then will re- renovate the earth or remake the earth. And it's an interesting statement here that I was thinking as I was considering this. He established it, you know, he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. I was thinking, what in the world does that mean? This is the only thing I come up with. What does the earth have that other planets do not have that is required to sustain life? Water. A hydrologic cycle. Now, for those of you who don't know what a hydrologic cycle is, that's the cycle. It begins with evaporation of the water from the surfaces of the ocean and the seas or whatever. And as moist air is lifted up, it cools and water vapor condenses to form clouds. And from clouds we get rain. Ecclesiastes 1.5 through 7 says this. The sun also ariseth, the sun goeth down, and hasteth to his place where he rose. The wind goeth toward the south and turneth about unto the north. It whirleth about continually, and the wind returneth again according to his circuits. All the rivers run into the sea, and yet the sea is not full. Unto the place from whence the rivers come, thither they return again. That's the hydrologic cycle. You know, the ripples all run into the sea, but the sea is never full because that water evaporates out of the seas and goes back into clouds and goes back to the places where the rivers begin and dumps it back out and it goes back to the sea. 
It's just a continuous cycle. You know, if we didn't have that continuous cycle, did you ever think about what would happen to the land? It couldn't sustain life. And so he established the earth. You know, God created this hydrologic cycle that sustains and maintains life on earth. I'm sorry, that's why they ain't going to live on Mars. They're going to be able to live on Mars. You know, he, he created all this. Uh, you might say all the wisdom of God. You know, and he even, he, he created, he made details. You know, God is very detailed. Psalm 94 verse 9 says, He that planted the ear, shall I not hear? He that formed the eye, shall I not see? You know, the ear and eyes are, you know, they're just, they're just like a speck of sand and compared to the, all of creation. And, and, but he goes even more detailed than that. Luke 12 verse 7, he says, Even the very hairs of your head, are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, ye are of more value than many sparrows. Of course, he's talking about our value, how much God cares for us. He even has the hairs of our head numbered. God is detailed. He knows everything about his creation. And he made everything with a purpose. Of course, that purpose was to glorify him. So we see the creation of the king. Secondly, I want you to notice here the communion with the king. In verses 3 to 5, it says, the, uh, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. You know, there are, there are prerequisites to commune with the king of glory. Some people have this idea that they can just auto, they automatically have fellowship with God or communion with God. That's, that's a false idea. That's a, a self-deceived idea or thought. You know, it's, you, you can't, this isn't true. You know, so, some people think they can come into a church and just join and just do anything they want. Thinking that, you know, they can, they, again, they have this, they, they automatically have somehow have this fellowship or relationship with the Lord, and they're first qualified. Try that in any other organization or institution. I mean, go on down to the local fire company, walk in and tell them you want to drive the fire truck the next time they have a call. Now, what do you think the members of that fire company are going to say to you? They're going to say, no, you're not. Now, you have to come to our meetings, become a member of our fire company, and then you will have to take some training before we will let you drive that big red fire engine. I guarantee you that's what they're going to say. And if we want communion with the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, there are some prerequisites. Of course, salvation, we understand that. We have to be born again of the Spirit of God. We have to be His children. But even further than that, there, there needs to be some a personal holiness. God is a holy God. Notice verse 3. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who shall stand in his holy place? And then it gives some qualifiers or some prerequisites. And it talks about clean hands and a pure heart. 
So that's, if we put these two together, you're talking about personal holiness. You're talking about outward and inward. But you can have an appearance of outward and not have the inward. But if you have an inward, guess what? It's going to show in the outward. It's going to show in the outward. Um, you see, God is a holy God. Isaiah 57, 15 says his name is holy. It's who he is. It is the essence of God. It's who he is. Um, it's part of his being. Habakkuk 1.13 says, Thou art of pure eyes and to behold evil, and canst not look upon iniquity. You know, this is, this is taught in the Old and New Testament, Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 20, verse 26. He, he, uh, Moses told the children of Israel that the Lord, their Lord, God, He is a holy God. He is a holy God. And of course, in 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16, it says, the Bible says, As obedient children... Not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. See, holiness is not some outdated tradition of yesteryear, like most of Christianity thinks today. They think, uh, well, that's the kind of Christianity had, you know, sort of like a lady told. Ryan Green, soon after we started church here, said, well, this isn't the 90s. You know, as if conservative, Bible-believing Christianity is outdated. You see, a lot of people look, on it, look upon it, and many times it's been taught as traditions that we keep. Because it hasn't been biblically taught. Like dress standards. You know, I've heard guys thunder from the pulpit about dress standards, but didn't really give us any teaching to back up what they said. I heard a guy say one time that Christian women don't wear pants. And I thought, that does a lot of good. All it did was offend some people. Sorry, but that is stupid. <laughs> um, no, holiness is a Bible doctrine. And it is really drawing near to God. It is, it is giving up oneself. It's more of a, it's, it's a, really a surrender, an attitude of surrender, giving up our way and doing, obeying God's way, whether it be dress or music or, or uh, things of worldliness, you know, associations, whatever it might be. Uh, it's, it's simply obeying the commands of God to separate from sin and those things that would defile us. James chapter 4, verse 8 says, Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. So it's a drawing nigh to God. And he says, To cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. So holiness is really drawing nigh to God. And that's what 2 Corinthians chapter 6 teaches. You know, a lot of people think 2 Corinthians chapter 6 is, a, is, a, is very negative. But I contend it's very positive. Because when Paul wrote to the church of Corinth, you know, they had all sorts of problems, and he addressed those problems, particularly in the first epistle in 1 Corinthians. But then he goes a little further in 2 Corinthians, and he says in verse, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 11, O ye Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you, our heart is enlarged. You are not straightened. That word straightened means restricted or hindered. So he says you're not straightened 
by obeying our word and drawing near to God, you're straightened or you're hindered in your relationship with the Lord by doing your own things, by disobeying God's commands. You're hindered because it, re it restricts our fellowship with the Lord. Then he says, you're, not straighten, you're straightening your own bowels, verse 12. Now for recompense of the same, I speak as unto my children, be ye also enlarged. You know, think about it this way. He's talking about us as children. If you're, the more your children obey you, the better relationship you have with them. The better relationship we have. The more we obey the Lord, the better relationship we have with him the better fellowship we have with him. But if we disobey him, it's just like a child. Um, there's not peace and harmony between two. Verse 14, Be ye not unweakly yoked with, together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? What concord hath Christ with Lyle? What part hath he that believeth with an infidel? What agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and, I, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will, and will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So the idea here is we're, we, we draw nigh to God. And, that, and it's, again, becoming more like him. The more we become like him, the nearer we are to him. In fact, Hebrews 12, 14 says this. Speaking of holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. You know, when we, we are positionally, when we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, we are positionally made holy in God's sight. And so without that holiness, no man will see the Lord. He's lost. Without the holiness of God, given to him through salvation. But in everyday practical living, God wants us to be holy so that our fellowship can be close. You know, uh, <clears throat> Charles Spurgeon said this, quote, Outward practical holiness is a very precious mark of grace. To wash in water with Pilate is nothing, but to wash in innocency is all important. It is to be feared that many professors have perverted the doctrine of justification by faith in such a way as to treat good works with contempt. If so, they will receive everlasting contempt at the last great day. It is vain to prate of inward experience unless the daily life is free from impurity, dishonesty, violence, and oppression. Those who draw near to God must have clean hands. What monarch would have servants with filthy hands to wait at his table? They who were ceremonially unclean could not enter the Lord's house, which is made with hands. Much less shall the morally defiled be allowed to enjoy spiritual fellowship with the holy God. If our hands are now unclean, let us wash them in Jesus' precious blood, and so let us pray unto God, lifting up pure hands. But clean hands would not suffice unless they were connected with a pure heart. True religion is heart work. We may wash the outside of the cup and the platter as long as we please, but if the inward parts be filthy, we are filthy altogether in the sight of God, 
for our hearts are more truly ourselves than our hands are. We may lose our hands and yet live, but we could not lose our heart and still live. The very life of our being lies in the inner nature, and hence the imperative need of purity within. There must be a work of grace in the core of the heart as well as in the palm of the hand, or our religion is a delusion. May God grant that our inward powers may be cleansed by the sanctifying spirit, so it may love holiness and abhor all sin. The pure in heart shall see God. All others are but blind bats. Stone blindness in the eye arises from stone in the heart. Dirt in the heart throws dust in the eyes. Unquote. You know, uh, an attitude of holiness is like, like Job, Job said when he heard from the Lord. He, he said, I, I abhor myself. I'm an unclean. He recognized that God was holy. And that's an attitude of holiness, uh, of heart. And, of course, God looked at Job and said that he was a righteous and an upright man and skewed evil. And, you know, and said to Job, have you considered him? <laughs> so there, there's, there's a, if we're going to have communion with the Lord, there has to be practical holiness. The second thing here we see is those if, if we desire communion with the Lord, those who delight in the things of God. Now, in Genesis verse 4, it says, He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity. Uh, so, you know, uh, communion with the king is those who delight in the things of God. In other words, they've not lifted up their soul unto vanity. Which means to not set our affections or pride yourself in earthly accomplishments. We're not to set our affections on things of the earth. You know, it was said of Jehoshaphat in Second Chronicles seventeen six. You know, he was one of the best best kings that Israel or that Judah had. And it says of him, and his heart was lifted up in the lifted up in the ways of the Lord. Moreover, he took away the high places and groves out of Judah. So not only did he seek the Lord, but in seeking the Lord, guess what he also did? He took away those vain things, those high places, and the groves. I mean, it was vain to go worship a high place. I mean, they were offering sacrifices. There was an appearance of worship there, but it was vain because it wasn't the acceptable place of sacrifice for the Lord. So it was vain. It was worthless. It was really satanic and worldly. And, and so because he sought the Lord, he got rid of that. He didn't seek to those vain things that Solomon even had built. Colossians 3, verses 1 to 3 says, If you then be risen with Christ, seek to those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ and God. You ever hear somebody say, he's just too heavenly minded? I wonder about that. How do you get too heavenly minded? Or they say he's too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. What, are we supposed to be a little bit worldly? No, we should be heavenly minded. Set our affections on things above. Uh, you know, Nebuchadnezzar was filled with vanity and pride. He said, look at this great Babylon that I have built. Guess what? In two generations, Babylon was destroyed. 
He's taken over. Somebody said this, quote, It is foolish and vain to take what we have for granted as if I have made it, unquote. You see, we ought not to look to the world for, the, for our satisfaction. It comes from the Lord. That is the only place where a person can find that inner peace and satisfaction is in the Lord. So, not lifted up a soul in vanity. And then the third thing, God communes with men of honor. Notice the, the, the end of verse 4 says, nor sworn deceitfully. Nor sworn deceitfully. The idea here is of lying or telling the truth. Not telling the truth. Your Proverbs 12, 22 says, Lying lips are abomination of the Lord, but they that deal truly are his delight. You know, God is truth. And he hates every false way. Um, Spurgeon again said this, quote, God will have nothing to do with liars except cast them into the lake of fire. Every liar is a child of the devil and will be sent home to his father. A false declaration, a fraudulent statement, a crooked account, a slander, a lie, all these may suit the assembly of the ungodly, but are detested among true saints. How could they have fellowship with the God of truth if they did not hate every false way? Unquote. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 104, Through thy precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. You know, Psalm 97.10 says, Ye that love the Lord, hate evil. There's some things that we ought to hate. You know, people say, you ought not to hate. You ought not to hate anything. Well, yeah, you should. There's some things you ought to hate. Psalm 119, verse 128 says, Therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. Of course, Revelation 28, 21.8 says, Fearful, unbelieving, and abominable, and murderers, and whoremongers, and sorcerers, and adulterers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Uh, no, liars, you know, you know who the father of lies. That's the devil. You know, God communes with men of honor, whose word is their honor. They tell the truth. And, and we ought, you know, the Bible says in, in Ephesians chapter uh, uh, 4, I think it is, we're to put off lying and put on truth. Put on truth. We ought to be known as people that can be trusted because we're honest. Because we're honest. And so we see the creation of the king, communion with the king, and then thirdly, crowned with the king. Notice verses 7 through 9. It says, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the king of glory shall come in. Now, again, I, I've had a, a little difficulty. What does it mean, lift up your heads, O ye gates, the gates lift their heads. Well, to help us with that, go to Job 38. 
Job 38. Job 38. And verse 17. Job 38, 17. And the Lord... You know, the Lord is now asking Job questions. And uh, if you notice in verse 3, he says, Gird up now the loins like a man, and I will demand of thee, and answer thou me. So he's asking Job questions. In verse 17, he says this, Have the gates of death been opened unto thee? Or hast thou seen the doors of the shadow of death? Have the gates of death been opened to thee? And the answer would be no. Look at Psalm 9, verse 13. Psalm 9, verse 13. Psalm 9, verse 13. Have mercy upon me, O Lord. Consider my trouble, which I suffer of them that hate me. Thou that liftest me up from the gates of death. You see, it is Christ, our Christ alone, who hath opened the gates of death. You know, even the Old Testament saints. You know, go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4. And verse 8 says, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first from the lower parts of the earth, he that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. Now, it's talking about how Christ went into the lower parts of the earth. He went into Abraham's bosom, which is where the Old Testament saints were, until he rose from the dead. And he went to them and delivered them who were held captive. You see, no one could enter heaven until Jesus put his blood on the mercy seat in heaven. Look, look, in fact, look at Romans chapter 3. <clears throat> and then we're going to go to Hebrews, and I think that'll clear it up for us. He, Romans 3 and verse 23. For all sin then come short of the glory of God being justified freely by grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a perpetuation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. Now, the, I believe when you say you're talking about the sins of the past, he's talking about the sins of the Old Testament saints. And God forbear, you know what it means to forbear? Kind of the idea you put up with almost. You have some forbearance. In other words, God, God, you know, the, the, the blood of animals never took away sin. And so God just forbear until Christ came. But those Old Testament saints couldn't enter heaven until Christ came and offered his blood in the mercy seat in heaven. 
because the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins. And see, so Christ, go to Hebrews chapter 10 now, and Christ opened the gates. He lifted the gates, if you will, for us. He opened the gates of heaven for us. He opened the gates of death. Death is no more, it can't gate us in anymore. We're not, we're not held by, we're not held captive by that anymore. Uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 says, every priest standing daily, standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Talking about the Old Testament sacrifice. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. From henceforth, expecting till his enemies who made his footstool, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Wherefore, the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us, for after that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith Lord. I will put my law and laws into their hearts, and their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Praise the Lord. You see, every year, the children of Israel's sins were remembered again. Ours are remembered. Don't need to bring it up again because God doesn't remember it. It's under the blood of Christ. Verse 18. Now where remission of these is, there is no more. See, we don't need another offering because God doesn't remember our sins anymore. There's no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil. That is to say, his flesh, having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, we, can, we, can, we have access into that which we were barred from before. The Old Testament saints had no access to the throne of God. But we do. Through Christ. He's opened the gates. He's opened the gates. Back chapter 6, verse 19 and 20, it refers to that also. It says, Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. You see, only the high, again, the, 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 and, and it's not a complete type because not everyone could go in there. But in the children of Israel, in the tabernacle, only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies only once a year. And again, the sins were remembered every year. But he, only he alone could go in there once a year. You and, you and I couldn't have went in. But now we can all go in through the veil into the Holy of Holies, not in the tabernacle on earth, but in the tabernacle in heaven. The very presence of God. It, within the veil, whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see, we have an access to now into the very presence of God. Very presence of God. We no longer have to worship the Lord 
at a distance. The only distance that will be between us and the Lord is what we know by our lack of holiness. By our lack of holiness. That's the only distance between us and the Lord. That's the only fellowship that's hindered is what we, by our lack of holiness, by our own choices. We can have sweet communion with the king of all creation. You know, there isn't another religion like that on earth. That can go boldly into the presence of their God. You know, the Muslims, they fear Allah. They live in fear of him. He's not a personal God. He's way up here, somewhere out there. Very impersonal. I'd say he's like a spoiled brat, tyrant. But we have the king, the sovereign king as our God, as our savior, as one we can have communion with. That's why John said in 1 John chapter 1 that ye also may have fellowship that your joy may be full. And he says, this then is the message, verse 5, that we have heard of him and declare on you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light. Now, Melinda asked me a question. We were on, on our way up to Pennsylvania. I thought it was an interesting question. What's what about, she said, you know, there are things that, sins that I did in the past that I didn't know then were sin. How do you confess what you don't know? I said, you don't. But see, what it means here was it says when we walk in the light. In other words, you walk in the light that you have. You know, five years from now, there may be things that you come to understand from the word of God that you won't do, choices you won't make, because it's not pleasing to the Lord, that right now, you don't realize. It's called growth. But see, as we walk in the light, what we know to be right, as He is in the light, as He reveals Himself to us, and as we grow and as we learn, as we walk in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanseth us from all sin, even the ones we don't know. The ones we don't know. So you don't need to worry about you know, the riches of the grace of God. What a God we have. And no wonder the psalmist said, you know, he closed with this exclamation, Who is this King of glory? Who is this King of glory? Lord God, mighty in battle is he. The Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. Spurgeon said of this, he said this closing, quote, the closing note is inexpressibly grand. Jehovah of hosts, Lord of men and angels, Lord of the universe, Lord of the worlds, is the king of glory. All true glory is concentrated upon the true God for all other glory but is but a passing pageant, the painted pomp of an hour. 
the ascended Savior is here declared to be the head and crown of the universe, the King of glory. You know, as Martin Luther penned in his famous hymn, Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. That's our king of glory. Philippians 2.9 says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name. He is the king of glory. This is our king. This is our Lord. And he is king of kings and lord of lords. And one day the whole world will know that he is the king of kings and lord of lords. And so as we look ahead to the future, we have a bright and glorious future. You know, until he declares himself to the world, king of kings and lord of lords, we can walk in communion with him knowing that one day we will receive the blessing from the Lord and the righteousness from the God of his salvation. One day we will be with him. One day we will share in his glory. And even now, we can enjoy the blessings, the peace that passeth all understanding, and the blessed hope that we have in our King, of glory, our sovereign King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Might we go forward rejoicing in Him, proclaiming His promises, and testifying of His abundant grace for our every need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for the time in your word tonight. Thank you for the promises, and thank you for um, the, the word of God that declares the truth of our soon coming king. I pray that we rejoice in those promises. That we'd be faithful until he comes for us. And to live in light of those glorious promises. To set our affections on things above, not on things of the earth. And so, Father, we pray that you just help us, give us grace and strength in these days just to be faithful and be witnesses and testimonies for you. And we'll thank you for it. We do pray in Jesus' name.